Are you here? <laughs> We've got you tuned in, don't we? Yeah, you're here indeed, listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. We've got something meaningful and enjoyable for you, ladies and gentlemen. This is an archival interview with George Duke, a legend of music. The interview was recorded in George Duke's hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia. It was just before he was to perform at the Variety Playhouse. George Duke was a composer, recording artist, producer, and singer-songwriter. He was born January 12, 1946, and sadly, he passed away August 5, 2013. George's contributions to music were immense. Some of you may be aware that April is Jazz Appreciation Month, JAM. Well, if you want to appreciate some real jazz, we recommend listening to this interview and then delving into the George Duke discography. Lots of jazz in there and some jazz funk, Brazilian music, and more. We invite you to listen to the man's work. George Duke's handlers told Paul that he had 15 minutes with George. Paul knocked on the door and away they went. And what you're about to hear is what went down. You'll hear about George's early days and also about his time with Frank Zappa. It was a warm-hearted little chat. You know, we're doing all we can to get more and more content like this out there to the masses. Please like the Paul Leslie Hour on Facebook so you can stay updated and help us in our mission. And we thank you. Now here's the interview with the late George Duke. Let's listen together. Who is the real George Duke? You're looking at him right now. <laughs> Just me. Just me. Tell us about what was life like in the house. What, what kind of stuff did your parents play? Well, there was a lot of gospel music, especially on Sundays. Uh, obviously on the radio, you know, there were the, the, the shy, you know, there were the groups, the, 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 the quartet kind of groups that were out at that time, you know, in the fifties, there was all of that kind of doo-wop and that kind of stuff. James Brown was popular. So there was that kind of stuff. The, that was really what I heard on the radio. In terms of the, the whole jazz thing, there was a guy that was next door to me. It's funny, man, because I actually wrote a song about it. It's uh, called Marin City, which is where I grew up. And and it, it, the song is autobiographical. It's on the Cool album, I think. It's called Marin City. And it really describes what this was like. And there was a, uh, the houses were, it was like a World War II housing area. And where people, you know, of color were put, that's where they had, during the war effort, that's where they had to live. And so we were there, it was a ghetto, but I didn't know it was a ghetto, you know, it was, I thought it was fabulous, you know, I mean, I was there with a lot of people that knew me, if I said, did something wrong, on one side of town, I got whipped three times before I got home. That was the environment, but the houses, the way they were built, they were like butt-ended. And so my room was right next in the back room was right next to whoever lived in the other apartment and they were two jammed together and this guy used to play jazz all I could hear was and and looking back on it it was kind of like probably some Hank Crawford 
Ray Charles kind of jazz stuff, you know, with the bass kind of bluesy stuff. And that was my first introduction to jazz, along with coming up with some, finding some old 78 recordings in my uncle's house. And I, I went up there and I said, man, what's this? He had these big platters, man, with Woody Herman and, and Duke Ellington and all those kind of people. I put it out and said, wow, I never heard this on the radio, but it interested me. What led you to the piano? Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington. Absolutely. And what was it about his style that you liked? I can't say it was the style. I mean, all I know is when I was four and a half years old, my mom took me to see Duke. And uh, all I know is I saw this guy in this off-white suit. He was doing something with his hands. <laughs> and I later found out he was playing the piano. And every now and then he'd lift his hands up. And it was like magic. The other guys would start playing. You know, da, 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 da. And I was like, how did he do that? He just waved his hand. I thought he was waving. You know, so I waved back, you know, and his name was Duke. And the people seemed to be having a good time. And I, I kind of liked it. And I said, I don't know what he's doing, but I want to do that. And he spoke two different languages. He spoke what I call today the King's English. But at the same time, he spoke more of the ghetto English, like or, or what I would call that other kind of language, which is kind of hip, kind of like the language of the day. You know, other kind of words, other words, you know, almost like what rappers use now. So it was kind of interesting dichotomy of, of, of styles and that interested me musically he was too it was too advanced for me i didn't know what the heck he was doing but whatever it was i wanted to do it you still listen to him at all not too much no. uh, i don't have time to listen to much of anything other than what i'm working on it's, uh, it's really a shame tell us about your studies you studied the trombone yeah <laughs> yeah how'd that come about well see what, what happened is there was a uh, scholarship available at the San Francisco Conservatory. And I found out there were no trombone majors. So I said, hey, man, you know, what do I have to do? You have to play this piece. And the actor says, well, I found out what the piece was. It's some Hindemith Sonata or something. So I went and practiced it. One of the things, four years in a row. And it helped me get through school because it paid half the tuition. You've worked with so many artists. And this may be an impossible question to answer. Al Jarreau. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Could you pick one that is your favorite? I don't know. I, I hate to do that, that. That's kind of tough. That's almost like choosing your, what's your, who's your favorite kid? You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't want, or you, that's almost like telling what's my favorite song. Depends on what side of the bed I get up on. My favorite, if I had to choose one besides me, because I, I love working on my own records because I can be free to do whatever I want. Right. You know, other than that, I would probably say the most fun I had working on a record was with Jeffrey Osborne. Those days in the 80s, Jeffrey, Denise Williams, Diane Reeves is always a lot of fun. My cousin, so we have a lot of fun. i say between those three, those are probably the most fun that I've had. With Jeffrey, without a doubt. Because we, man, all we did was laugh and drink wine and, and have a good time. And talk about music and, and joke around. It was really a lot of fun. I have to ask you about working with Frank Zappa. Yeah. What was that experience like? What was Frank like? How much time you got? <laughs> well, Frank was a Frank was a genius, man. I mean, the guy, he's responsible for for opening me up to the world of music and which is why I'm I'm as eclectic as I am now in my taste because he kind of he didn't force me into it, but he kind of led me down that path and just says, you know, just, just said, you know, you should investigate this. You know, because you should uh, enlarge your arsenal. I mean, he's the one that first get me involved in playing synthesizers. The first one to get me to seriously think about singing. The first one to get me thinking about 
There's there's more to life than just playing the piano. You're too serious. You need to invest in yourself. You need to learn more about the workings of the studio. You need to, you know, you need to invest in yourself. Not necessarily, don't put all your money in the stock market. Get the equipment you need. Because I was something I wanted. And I said, Frank, I really could use this piece of equipment. And he says, man, find a way to, to get what you want. Because he says, that'll just help you create what you, what's in your mind. And he just led me to believe that, that I should trust in my talent. And uh, so that was a lot. Man, there was so many things I learned from Frank. And I, and eventually I took it to heart. I mean, especially the synthesizer thing. I didn't want to play it. You know, and he, he bought one for me. He says, he says, I tell you what, he says, George, I'm going to buy you one. I'm going to put it on your Fender Rhodes and maybe you'll bump it and the sound will come out you like. So what he said. And eventually one day I bumped it and the sound came out. I was like, whoa, I could bend a note. As soon as I found out I could bend a note, cause you can't really do that on piano. Well, virtual piano, you can do it, but real piano, you can't really bend a note. Man, I was done. I said, this is, I can find a way to play the blues on this rascal. I don't hear anybody playing synthesizer doing that. And so that was kind of my contribution to synthesis is trying to bring more of a, that element to synthesis without all this, ooh, 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 I know you could do all of that, but I wanted to see if you could do something else. So there it was. Frank was an amazing cat, man. Amazing cat. Absolutely a genius in music. He knew, I think instinctively, I think he knew he didn't have a long time. It's, it's almost like he was possessed with music, just possessed. I mean, he, I would put that at the top of the list between that, coffee, women, and, and all that, the music at the top. Whew. Just constantly churning about music, foot going like, you know, shaking like this, drinking coffee, great bottles of wine occasionally if he wanted, and just like, let's change this, let's try this, let's do this, let's, what did you say? Let's put this in the music, you know, and constantly evolving. Guy was self-taught. Amazing cat, man. What's the first thing that pops into your mind when I say Stanley Clark? One of the most eclectic and, and great artists that I've ever worked with. He's as deep as me musically, if not deeper. An excellent guy to work with. Matter of fact, we're going to get together next year and do the Clark Duke Project one more time. All right. How did the Brazilian music find its way into your music? How did you get into that? There was a guy named Lou Ganapolar who ran the, um, who managed the Triton, which was a little club in Sausalito right off the water. Beautiful place. It was a restaurant, but at night it turned into a, a, a nightclub and they had music. Sergio Mendes, Brazil 65, was playing there. Uh, 63 at the time. And he, I was in high school. And he says, man, you ought to come down and listen to this group. This is mother music, Brazilian music. I said, Brazilian music? I don't know. He said, just come down. I think you might like it. So I went down there. I was like, Wow, man. And I went every set after that because I had never heard any music like this. But I didn't know how to play it. And I didn't, you couldn't find a drummer who really could play that kind of music the way they played it. You know, I said, man, I need to go to Brazil. But I was a teenager and I went to school. Eventually I joined the, the Cannonball Adderley Quintet and Cannonball said, come over to my house. He said, I want to play something for you that I think you ought to include in your arsenal. And so he came over and he started playing me some Milton Nascimento and some other artists. And I was like, wow, this is Brazilian music too? I said, nah, I'm really captivated. He says, well, well, guess what? He says, we got a gig in Brazil, so we're going there like in a couple of weeks. I was like, man, I went to Brazil. I bought every record I could find by a bunch of people I didn't know and filled up the suitcase, brought it back to the States and studied. 
And I said, one day I'm going to go back there and do a record. And that's how a Brazilian love affair happened, how the album and my love for the music happened, especially through Florin Ayerto and Milton Nascimento and all the other people that were like Brazilian junkies, Brazilian music junkies. And I just have a love for the music, man. It's, it's a perfect combination of rhythm and melody. Before we were starting the interview, you were talking about a recording that's available just for your fans on your own label. Yeah. Well, I started Big Piano Music, which BPM. I started that in 2000 after I left Warner Brothers. And I really started as a musician label. And I wanted it to be something where musicians could kind of go and create music and just for music's sake, not necessarily trying to make hit records or, or trying to play the normal radio game and all this the stuff that's involved with that. It didn't turn out that way because the bottom fell out of the industry, and so now I'm the only one on the label, which is cool because I get a chance to do what I want to do. It's distributed through Heads Up. But this particular album, I had some stuff that I saved from 1965 that I recorded in one single night with Al Jarreau when he was working with my trio in San Francisco at a small club called the Half No Club. We had worked there. We worked there for about three years, all told. And so I kept this music. I played it for Al about a year and a half ago, and it just brought back all these memories. He started crying, and just like Al was just like, "Oh man!" I said, "Al, now I'm gonna tell you. It's great to sit here and listen to it, but I think we ought to put it out." And he says, "I'm down with it." The only thing we need to do is kind of clean up his vocals because every now and then, if he sang close to the mic, it would distort. So we couldn't get it all out, but we got it what we could, and I think the rest is, is, is historical gold as far as I'm concerned. So we put it out at our shows, our live shows, which we'll be doing not only this year, but into next year in the future, just with Al on the trail. It's almost like coming around 360 degrees. We sell it on our websites and iTunes. Call Al Jarreau and the George Duke Trail live at the half note. 1965, Volume 1, and there'll be two more to follow. All right. So when somebody listens to one of these recordings or when they see you in performance or listen to you on the radio, what is it you want the listener to get out of the experience? I think they should get what they what they what they want out of it. Uh, not necessarily, not even necessarily what I want to give. I mean, obviously I have certain messages if it's a vocal, but if it's not an instrumental, people can pretty much feel what they want. I think the main thing is I hope out of my music that they get a positive message and a positive vibe. I think there's an energy out there and the musicians can tap into that energy to for positive or negative. There are a lot of musicians who talk about only the negative side of things. I try try while keeping it real, try to keep it on the positive side, positive messages. You know, not and sometimes having fun, stuff that's just light. There's nothing no long, you know, heavy musical statement. It's just having fun. And I don't think anything's wrong with that. But there are other times when I have something to say and I say it. But what they get out of it, I think is really up to how big they deep sometimes. Because a lot of times there's a lot of things between the lines. Hello. <laughs> I got two final questions I ask sure. all of our guests. First of all, what is your all-time favorite meal? Well, I'm a pasta firing. Okay. <laughs> Specifically anything? Yeah, Mike Sabello and I used to laugh about this. He called me a pasta farian. Man, <laughs> because we, we used to go have what we call pasta death. You know, we would just go, because at that time I was young and we used to go eat these pastas with a cream sauce. So we had tortellini with prosciutto and peas in this awful cream sauce, which was, you know, clog up your things and you just die. <laughs> So we call it pasta death, and we used to do it at least once or twice a week. 
I don't do that anymore. I don't eat cream, cream sauces anymore. I'm a red sauce kind of guy now. Yeah. So I leave it at that. Yeah, I, I make my own on, on the weekends. I, I have what I call my, my weekend special. And I have a, a little pasta with a nice red sauce, just some puttanesca sauce every now and then. Or just a nice plain basil, tomato and basil. Something. Very good. My last question for all the listeners out there, it's very open-ended. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? Yeah. There's something I put on my Reach For It album, and it goes something like this, you know. Life is one long reach, the ongoing search for self and relationship. Enjoy. Very good. Well, Mr. Duke, thanks so All much. Right. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.